Section 2, Chapter 17 of The History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.T. Macduff. A History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 17, Section 2. Some things indeed were to be done which none of his subjects would have ventured to do. Pope Alexander was really, though not in name, one of the Allies. It was of the highest importance to have him for a friend. And yet such was the temper of the English nation that an English minister might well shrink from having any dealings, direct or indirect, with the Vatican. The secretaries of state were glad to leave a matter so delicate and so full of risk to their master, and to be able to protest with truth that not a line to which the most intolerant Protestant could object had ever gone out of their offices. It must not be supposed, however, that William ever forgot that his especial, his hereditary mission, was to protect the Reformed faith. His influence with the Roman Catholic princes was constantly and strenuously exerted for the benefit of their Protestant subjects. In the spring of 1691, the Waldensian shepherds, long and cruelly persecuted, and weary of their lives, were surprised by glad tidings. Those who had been in prison for heresy returned to their homes. Children, who had been taken from their parents to be educated by priests, were sent back. Congregations, which had hitherto met only by stealth and with extreme peril, now worshipped God without molestation in the face of the day. Those simple mountaineers probably never knew that their fate had been a subject of discussion at The Hague, and that they owed the happiness of their firesides and the security of their humble temples to the ascendancy which William exercised over the Duke of Savoy. No coalition of which history has preserved the memory has had an abler chief than William. But even William often contended in vain against those vices which are inherent in the nature of all coalitions. No undertaking which requires the hearty and long-continued cooperation of many independent states is likely to prosper. Jealousies inevitably spring up, disputes engender disputes. Every confederate is tempted to throw on others some part of the burden which he ought himself to bear. Scarcely one honestly furnishes the promised contingent, scarcely one exactly observes the appointed day. But perhaps no coalition that ever existed was in such constant danger of dissolution as the coalition which William had with infinite difficulty formed. The long list of potentates who met in person or by their representatives at The Hague looked well in the gazettes. The crowd of princely equipages attended by many-colored guards and lackeys looked well among the lime-trees of the Voorhout. But the very circumstances which made the Congress more splendid than other Congresses made the lead weaker than other leagues. The more numerous the Allies, the more numerous were the dangers which threatened the alliance. It was impossible that twenty governments, divided by quarrels about precedence, quarrels about territory, quarrels about trade, quarrels about religion, could long act together in perfect harmony. That they act together during several years in imperfect harmony is to be ascribed to the wisdom, patience, and firmness of William. The situation of his great enemy was very different. The resources of the French monarchy, though certainly not equal to those of England, Holland, the House of Austria, and the Empire of Germany united, were yet very formidable. They were all collected in a central position. They were all under the absolute direction of a single mind. Louis could do with two words what William could hardly bring about by two months of negotiation at Berlin, Munich, Brussels, Turin, and Vienna. Thus, France was found equal in effective strength 
to all the states which were combined against her, for in the political as in the natural world there may be an equality of momentum between unequal bodies, when the body which is inferior in weight is superior in velocity. This was soon signally proved. In March the princes and ambassadors who had been assembled at the Hague separated, and scarcely had they separated when all their plans were disconcerted by a bold and skilful move of the enemy. Louis was sensible that the meeting of the Congress was likely to produce a great effect on the public mind of Europe. That effect he determined to counteract by striking a sudden and terrible blow. While his enemies were settling how many troops each of them should furnish, he ordered numerous divisions of his army to march from widely distant points towards Mons, one of the most important, if not the most important, of the fortresses which protected the Spanish Netherlands. His purpose was discovered only when it was all but accomplished. William, who had retired for a few days to Loo, learned with surprise and extreme vexation that cavalry, infantry, artillery, bridges of boats were fast approaching the fated city by many converging routes. A hundred thousand men had been brought together. All the implements of war had been largely provided by Louvois, the first of living administrators. The command was entrusted to Luxembourg, the first of living generals. The scientific operations were directed by Vauban, the first of living engineers, that nothing might be wanting which could kindle emulation through all the ranks of a gallant and loyal army. The magnificent king himself had set out from Versailles for the camp. Yet William had still some faint hope that it might be possible to raise the siege. He flew to the Hague, put all the forces of the states-general in motion, and sent pressing messages to the German princes. Within three weeks after he had received the first hint of the danger, he was in the neighborhood of the besieged city, at the head of nearly fifty thousand troops of different nations. To attack a superior force commanded by such a captain as Luxembourg was a bold, almost a desperate enterprise. Yet William was so sensitive that the loss of Mons would be an almost irreparable disaster and disgrace, that he made up his mind to run the hazard. He was convinced that the event of the siege would determine the policy of the courts of Stockholm and Copenhagen. Those courts had lately seemed inclined to join the coalition. If Mons fell, they would certainly remain neutral. They might possibly become hostile. The risk, he wrote to Heinzius, is great. Yet I am not without hope. I will do what can be done. The issue is in the hands of God. On the very day in which this letter was written, Mons fell. The siege had been vigorously pressed. Louis himself, though suffering from the gout, had set the example of strenuous exertion. His household troops, the finest body of soldiers in Europe, had, under his eye, surpassed themselves. The young nobles of his court had tried to attract his notice by exposing themselves to the hottest fire with the same gay alacrity with which they were wont to exhibit their graceful figures at his balls. His wounded soldiers were charmed by the benignant courtesy with which he walked among their pallets, assisted while wounds were dressed by the hospital surgeons and breakfasted on a porringer of the hospital broth. While all was obedience and enthusiasm among the besiegers, all was disunion and dismay among the besieged. The duty of the French lines was so well performed that no messenger sent by William was able to cross them. The garrison did not know that relief was close at hand. The burghers were appalled by the prospect of those horrible calamities which befall cities taken by storm. Showers of shells and red-hot bullets were falling in the streets. The town was on fire in ten places at once. The peaceful inhabitants derived an unwanted courage from the excess of their fear, and rose on the soldiers. Thenceforth resistance was impossible, 
and a capitulation was concluded. The armies then retired into quarters. Military operations were suspended during some weeks. Louis returned in triumph to Versailles, and William paid a short visit to England, where his presence was much needed. He found the ministers still employed in tracing out the ramifications of the plot which had been discovered just before his departure. Early in January, Preston, Ashton, and Elliot had been arraigned at the Old Bailey. They claimed the right of severing in their challenges. It was therefore necessary to try them separately. The audience was numerous and splendid. Many peers were present. The Lord President and two secretaries of state attended in order to prove that the papers produced in court were the same which Philip had brought to Whitehall. A considerable number of judges appeared on the bench, and Holt presided. A full report of the proceedings has come down to us and well deserves to be attentively studied, and to be compared with the reports of other trials which had not long before taken place under the same roof. The whole spirit of the tribunal had undergone in a few months a change so complete that it might seem to have been the work of ages. Twelve years earlier, unhappy Roman Catholics, accused of wickedness which had never entered into their thoughts, had stood in that dock. The witnesses for the crown had repeated their hideous fictions amidst the applauding hums of the audience. The judges had shared, or had pretended to share, the stupid credulity and the savage passions of the populace, had exchanged smiles and compliments with the perjured informers, had roared down the arguments feebly stammered forth by the prisoners, and had not been ashamed, in passing the sentence of death, to make ribald jests on purgatory and the mass. As soon as the butchery of Pappas was over, the butchery of Whigs had commenced and the judges had applied themselves to their new work with even more than their old barbarity. To these scandals the revolution had put an end. Whoever, after perusing the trials of Ireland and Pickering, of Grove and Berry, of Sydney, Cornish, and Alice Lyle, turns to the trials of Preston and Ashton, will be astonished by the contrast. The Solicitor General, Summers, conducted the prosecutions with the moderation and humanity of which his predecessors had left him no example. I did never think, he said, that it was the part of any who were of counsel for the king in cases of this nature to aggravate the crime of the prisoners, or to put false colors on the evidence. Holt's conduct was faultless. Pollexfen, an older man than Holt or Summers, retained a little, and a little was too much, of the tone of that bad school in which he had been bred. But though he once or twice forgot the austere decorum of his place, he cannot be accused of any violation of substantial justice. The prisoners themselves seem to have been surprised by the fairness and gentleness with which they were treated. "'I would not mislead the jury, I'll assure you,' said Holt to Preston, "'nor do your lordship any manner of injury in the world.' "'No, my lord,' said Preston, "'I see it well enough that your lordship would not.' "'Whatever my fate may be,' said Ashton, "'I cannot but own that I have had a fair trial for my life.' The culprits gained nothing by the moderation of the solicitor-general, or by the impartiality of the court, for the evidence was irresistible. The meaning of the papers seized by Billop was so plain that the dullest juryman could not misunderstand it. Of those papers part was fully proved to be in Preston's handwriting. Part was in Ashton's handwriting, but this the counsel for the prosecution had not the means of proving. They therefore rested the case against Ashton on the indisputable facts that the treasonable packet had been found in his bosom, and that he had used language which was quite unintelligible except on the supposition that he had a guilty knowledge of the contents. Both Preston and Ashton were convicted and sentenced to death. 
Ashton was speedily executed. He might have saved his life by making disclosures, but though he declared that if he were spared he would always be a faithful subject of their majesties, he was fully resolved not to give up the names of his accomplices. In this resolution he was encouraged by the non-juring divines who attended him in his cell. It was probably by their influence that he was induced to deliver to the sheriffs on the scaffold a declaration which he had transcribed and signed, but had not, it is to be hoped, composed or attentively considered. In this paper he was made to complain of the unfairness of a trial which he himself in public acknowledged to have been eminently fair. He was also made to aver, on the word of a dying man, that he knew nothing of the papers which had been found upon him. Unfortunately, his declaration, when inspected, proved to be in the same handwriting with one of the most important of those papers. He died with manly fortitude. Elliot was not brought to trial. The evidence against him was not quite so clear as that on which his associates had been convicted, and he was not worth the anger of the government. The fate of Preston was long in suspense. The Jacobites affected to be confident that the government would not dare to shed his blood. He was, they said, a favorite at Versailles, and his death would be followed by a terrible retaliation. They scattered about the streets of London papers in which it was asserted that, if any harm befell him, Mountjoy and all the other Englishmen of quality who were prisoners in France would be broken on the wheel. These absurd threats would not have deferred the execution one day. But those who had Preston in their power were not unwilling to spare him on certain conditions. He was privy to all the counsels of the disaffected party and could furnish information of the highest value. He was informed that his fate depended on himself. The struggle was long and severe. Pride, conscience, party spirit were on one side, the intense love of life on the other. He went during a time irresolutely to and fro. He listened to his brother Jacobites, and his courage rose. He listened to the agents of the government, and his heart sank within him. In an evening, when he had dined and drunk his claret, he feared nothing. He would die like a man, rather than save his neck by an act of baseness. But his temper was very different when he woke the next morning, when the courage which he had drawn from wine and company had evaporated, when he was alone with the iron grates and stone walls, and when the thought of the block, the axe, and the sawdust rose in his mind. During some time he regularly wrote a confession every forenoon when he was sober, and burned it every night when he was merry. His non-juring friends formed a plan for bringing Sancroft to visit the tower, in the hope, doubtless, that the exhortations of so great a prelate and so great a saint would confirm the wavering virtue of the prisoner. Whether this plan would have been successful may be doubted. It was not carried into effect. The fatal hour drew near and the fortitude of Preston gave way. He confessed his guilt and named Clarendon, Dartmouth, the Bishop of Ely, and William Penn as his accomplices. He added a long list of persons against whom he could not himself give evidence, but who, if he could trust to Penn's assurances, were friendly to King James. Among these persons were Devonshire and Dorset. There is not the slightest reason to believe that either of these great noblemen ever had any dealings, direct or indirect, with St. Germain. It is not, however, necessary to accuse Penn of deliberate falsehood. He was credulous and garrulous. The Lord Steward and the Lord Chamberlain had shared in the vexation with which their party had observed the leaning of William towards the Tories, and they had probably expressed that vexation unguardedly. So weak a man as Penn, wishing to find Jacobites everywhere, and prone to believe whatever he wished, might easily put an erroneous construction on invective such as the haughty and irritable Devonshire was but too ready to utter 
and on sarcasm such as, in moments of spleen, dropped but too easily from the lips of the keen-witted Dorset. Care Martin, a Tory, and a Tory who had been mercilessly persecuted by the Whigs, was deposed to make the most of this idle hearsay. But he received no encouragement from his master, who, of all the great politicians mentioned in history, was the least prone to suspicion. When William returned to England, Preston was brought before him, and was commanded to repeat the confession which had already been made to the ministers. The king stood behind the Lord President's chair and listened gravely while Clarendon, Dartmouth, Turner, and Penn were named. But as soon as the prisoner, passing from what he could himself testify, began to repeat the stories which Penn had told him, William touched Caremartin on the shoulder and said, My lord, we have had too much of this. This judicious magnanimity had its proper reward. Devonshire and Dorset became from that day more zealous than ever in the cause of the master who, in spite of calumny for which their own indiscretion had perhaps furnished some ground, had continued to repose confidence in their loyalty. Even those who were undoubtedly criminal were generally treated with great leniency. Clarendon lay in the tower about six months. His guilt was fully established, and a party among the Whigs called loudly and importunately for his head. But he was saved by the pathetic entreaties of his brother Rochester by the good offices of the humane and generous Burnet, and by Mary's respect for the memory of her mother. The prisoner's confinement was not strict. He was allowed to entertain his friends at dinner. When at length his health began to suffer from restraint, he was permitted to go into the country under the care of a warder. The warder was soon removed, and Clarendon was informed that, while he led a quiet rural life, he should not be molested. The treason of Dartmouth was of no common dye. He was an English seaman, and he had laid a plan for betraying Portsmouth to the French, and had offered to take the command of a French squadron against his country. It was a serious aggravation of his guilt that he had been one of the very first persons who took the oaths to William and Mary. He was arrested and brought to the council chamber. A narrative of what passed there, written by himself, has been preserved. In that narrative he admits that he was treated with great courtesy and delicacy. He vehemently asserted his innocence. He declared that he had never corresponded with Saint-Germain, that he was no favorite there, and that Mary of Modena in particular owed him a grudge. My lords, he said, I am an Englishman. I always, when the interest of the House of Bourbon was strongest here, shunned the French, both men and women. I would lose the last drop of my blood rather than see Portsmouth in the power of foreigners. I am not such a fool as to think that King Louis would conquer us, merely for the benefit of King James. I am certain that nothing can be truly imputed to me beyond some foolish talk over a bottle." His protestations seemed to have produced some effect, for he was at first permitted to remain in the gentle custody of the Black Rod. On further inquiry, however, it was determined to send him to the Tower. After a confinement of a few weeks, he died of apoplexy but he lived long enough to complete his disgrace by offering his sword to the new government, and by expressing in fervent language his hope that he might, by the goodness of God and of their majesties, have an opportunity of showing how much he hated the French. End of section 2. Recording by S. T. Macduff.